Christmas series. Um, Also, just wanted to, before we get started and jump in, remind everyone that Christmas Eve, we're we're gathering an offering uh, for the Lottie Moon offering, which uh, over the past couple weeks, we've been reading uh, some biographical elements from her life. Um, I don't have anything for us to read today, but uh, remember that that's happening tomorrow, which is Christmas Eve, which is crazy, right? It's already here. The year is over. Um, but let's pray um, as, as we, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. We'll be looking at um, Elizabeth and uh, Zechariah and John the Baptist is our, is our birth. Uh, but, but let's pray. Uh, Father, um, we are so needy um, and we come to you as people who need you. There is no amount of, of effort, there is no amount of our striving uh, that can get us close to you. you. You had to come near to us. And so, Lord, as, as we examine uh, the events that lead up to the birth of your son, uh, by looking at, at Elizabeth and Zechariah and John the Baptist, I pray that you would captivate our hearts with your majesty and with your beauty, and with your love for us, uh, and that uh, the response of our hearts would be praise and adoration uh, and excitement and joy and um, hope. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. So the, the Ben-Abijahs, which is my, my way of, of giving this family a last name, the Ben-Abijahs were old to begin with. There is no doubt about that, whatever. Uh, if the Christmas carol, right, that was a line from the Christmas carol, just sort of like switched up. The Christmas carol was about Zechariah, a priest of the line of Abijah, right? That's why there have been Abijahs. Um, his wife, Elizabeth, and their birth of their son, John the Baptist, it would start exactly that way. The, the fact that they were old is crucial to the drama of this story. Um, And because it's crucial to the drama, therefore, it's crucial to the theological importance of the events recorded about this family. It is tied up in the fact that the Ben-Abijahs were old and that they were barren. And so today, uh, we're going to be looking uh, uh, about what this story means about John the Baptist and his mother Elizabeth and his father Zechariah and, and, and how we can, can glean some truth from that and, and how it can push us toward hope in Jesus. The, this is the first uh, birth that we're having from the New Testament, but it's not without threads that trace all the way back to Genesis 3.15. It was, it was up on the screen earlier, but, but Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so a- after his uh, prologue, Luke, the author of Luke, um, in 1 through 4, that's the prologue, Luke begins his account of the birth of Christ with an account uh, of, of another birth, the uh, birth of John the Baptist. And the way that he introduces uh, us to the story, it, if you're a, a, a good reader of the Septuagint, the LXX, if you had been thoughtful in, in reading it and, and remembering it, the way that Luke starts in verse 5 should evoke 
a memory, in fact, two memories of miraculous births that have been recorded in the Septuagint. And, and these connections are sustained throughout the whole course of the text. Uh, they're connections to, to Samuel, the birth of Samuel, and to the birth of Samson. Um, this is the only time that I'm going to mention a connection, uh, but they are all over the place. And so as you can play like connection bingo in your notes, right? Like just write, write down some connections. But ver- verse 5 says this, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Again, I, I said this language was reminiscent of, of uh, Samuel. So if you flip over to, to 1 Samuel 1 and following, you'll, you'll see the announcement or the introduction to his story follows a similar pattern. And in Judges 13.2 and following, you'll see that Samson's story is, is the same. The openings of, of these narratives, these two men, Samuel and Samson, are pivotal they're pivotal forerunners in, in an incredibly important part of redemptive history, the Davidic kingdom. It, um, so, right, Samson, he, he begins to free Israel from the Philistines, which is finished by David. Right? David comes and he defeats the Philistines. And then you also have uh, Samuel, who installs David as king. And both of them are born in this miraculous way. Both of them... Uh, Luke is trying to draw your memory of that because the Davidic covenant is so crucial to what's going on in the first chapter and the second chapter of Luke. The Davidic covenant. Both Samson and Samuel were forerunners to David, much like John the Baptist is the forerunner to Jesus. He is the Elijah to Jesus' Elisha. He is the Moses to Jesus' Joshua. And he is the David, or sorry, he is the the Solomon, excuse me, John the Baptist is David, Jesus is Solomon. <laughs> now, a cursory under the understanding of the Davidic covenant is important here. So uh, here's a high level, real high level over, overview. It all starts back with Adam and Eve in the garden. And there's, there's three elements. There's a, a commandment to Adam and Eve to fill the earth. Uh, you see that in Genesis 1.28. And, and God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every, every living creature that moves on the earth. So you have this commandment to fill the earth uh, with the promised seed. Uh, in, in ver- uh, the second thing I want you to see is that he, there's promised destruction of enemies. That's Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, uh, and you shall bruise his heel. And then uh, finally, there's a curse. There's a curse that gets placed on the earth in, in Genesis 3.17. Um, God says, and, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. But by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so uh, we have a commandment to fill. We have uh, promised destruction of enemies, and then there's a curse upon mankind. Um, 
And, and so as, as we think through, like that, those are the three sort of key pillars that we should have in our mind because the next step, there's, a, there's Noah, right? But then another big pivotal point in covenant history is Abraham. And so to, to Abraham, a seed was promised. You see that in Genesis 15, 4 through 6, and 17, 6 through 8. Uh, he's also, Abraham has promised the destruction of his enemies. Uh, we see that in Genesis twenty-two seventeen, And then uh, Abraham has said that he will be blessed instead of cursed. And that's in Genesis 12, 3. So uh, Abraham's given a seed to fill the earth. He's promised destruction over his enemies, and he uh, is given blessings instead of curses. And, and Genesis twenty-two seventeen through 18 uh, summarizes it all. Uh, to Abraham, it said, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. We, 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 we heard that when we were uh, learning about uh, Sarah. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So the, the enemies will be destroyed. Uh, and, your offspring shall, uh, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Genesis 22, 17 through 18 summarizes all three of those big points of the covenant with Abraham very succinctly. So now uh, after Abraham, there's uh, you know, some time period. And then you have David. The Davidic covenant amplifies these promises to Abraham and applies them uh, specifically. Uh, David is given a king to rule the earth forever. David is promised destruction of his enemies, and David uh, is a, it will be a blessing uh, to the world. So in Second uh, Samuel 7, starting in verse 8, uh, we, we, we see these promises unfold. It says, Now therefore, thus say to my servant David. So God is addressing Nathan the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Now, imagine that for a second. So a, a shepherd, it's a, it's a pretty lowly trade, right? It's not, um, they're not, uh, you know, sitting in palaces, Right? Shepherds are doing hard, laborious, boring work. Right? They're with stinky sheep all day long. They're, they're leading them to get fed, and they're, they're bringing them. They're finding the, the stray ones. It, it, it drains their body. They're exposed to the elements. It's, it's difficult, hard work. And so uh, in verse 9, so hard Hard work, a shepherd, a lowly shepherd. And I have been with you wherever you have and have cut off all your enemies from before you. So God is, is with him and he gives him destruction of his enemies. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. So rest from enemies is destruction of enemies. It's victory. Um, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down, I will raise up your offspring after you, and you shall, uh, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I 
will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits, so, so, um, there's, so there's this principle in, uh, in prophetic utterances, right? So this is a prophecy specific, like directly, immediately for Solomon, right? So Solomon is this promised seed uh, whose offspring will come, whose throne will be, kingdom will be established, right? Solomon's kingdom uh, fills all the boundaries that have been promised to Israel, so, so that's, it, it's true, um, right? So he filled, his kingdom is established. Everything that God had promised to Israel as they entered the promised land, Solomon owns, right? Solomon's kingdom is established. He builds a house for the Lord, right? He builds a, a, a palace for himself, right? All of this is what happens to Solomon. But in a sense, right, you're supposed to see through Solomon, to a more bigger and pure and more righteous fulfillment. Because, uh, right, verse 14 says, when he commits iniquity, the, the Lord of hosts commits no iniquity, right? Jesus never sins. He's, he's talking about Solomon in this case. But as you look through Solomon, this promise of he shall be to me a son, that speaks to Jesus, uh, that, that he shall establish his kingdom for forever, that speaks to Jesus. Solomon is dead. He's in a tomb somewhere, never to rise again until the, you know, the resurrection of the dead. Um, he, he won't rule forever, but Jesus does and is and will. And so, uh, continuing in verse 14, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So you have those three elements, right? You have um, the, a king to rule forever, and you have destruction of enemies, and you have a blessing instead of a curse. And, and Luke's gospel, uh, it, it riffs on this Davidic covenant all throughout it, both here in the opening narr- uh, birth narratives of, of John the Baptist and Jesus, but other places in the book, like a couple examples. Uh, Luke chapter 3, there's a genealogy. There's 77 names. So there's, was that, 11 groups of seven in the sixth group, right in the middle, there's seven names. Guess what the seventh name in the sixth group, right in the middle of the genealogy is? It's David, right? So, so David is crucial. Also, almost all of Luke, Jesus is either in Jerusalem, heading toward Jerusalem, or he's at the temple, which is in Jerusalem. And so uh, both of the, Jerusalem is a, the city that David founded, right? It's a city um, that, that he goes and he... Uh, he defeats the enemies, and, and they, they live there. He makes it his capital city. Um, it's also where they build the temple. It's credibly important and central to, to the, these Davidic uh, promises. And Jesus, it's Jesus, Luke will show, is the promised seed. He is the son of David. He is the one. Jesus is the one who will fill the earth. He will rule forever and ever. He will destroy all his enemies, and he will bring a blessing where there was a curse. And so if Jesus is, is the important driving force of, of this text, even this text about John the Baptist, what then of Elizabeth and Zechariah and John the Baptist? What then of our Ben Abijahs? How do they fit into this story? What's their role? 
what, what, what part do they play? So this is a righteous couple. They've walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, and they occupy an important place in the fulfillment of God's promise. For in their old age, right, somewhere in the vicinity of 80-ish years, if, if you look at, uh, it says, you know, that they are advanced in years. Um, there's another lady in uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 36, that is also described as being advanced in years. And her, uh, she's given a number of years that she's been alive. She's been alive 84 years, and she's advanced in years. So, so uh, Zechariah and... Um, Elizabeth are, are in the 80s, maybe, right? 70s. I don't know. The uh, advanced in years could have been broad. Maybe it's like from 40 to 100. I don't know. Um, but they're old. They're, they're old, uh, well past the age of childbirth. And this couple from the tribe of Levi will bear a son, and a son who will prepare, prepare the way of the Lord. So uh, there's going to be three narrative sections that we're going to be divided into here. Um, there's more, but I've lumped some together. Um, the first is the angel's visit. So if you look in verse 8 here, uh, it says, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And so what... Um, what uh, Zechariah is doing, he's just, he's a priest, it's his job, so he goes uh, to the temple to work it as they, they kind of, uh, you know, not everybody worked the temple every day, right? And they, they cast lots to see who would go into the, the Holy of Holies. And the reason they, they cast lots is because it was kind of a risky, risky deal. Um, going into the Holy of Holies was uh, risky because God's presence was there. Um, in, the, in the temple. And he didn't go into the Holy of Holies. He just went kind of like in a chamber kind of by it, but it was still risky. And he was burning incense. And in, in verse 10, uh, the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So it's probably the nighttime incense burning. Um, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, uh, this is an angelic visitation, um, and it, it needs to be read if, if you're reading the test in uh, conjunction or in light of uh, Mary's angelic visitation in, in chapter 1, verses 28 through 38. And as you do, you're going to notice a similar conversation flow. Um, there's an appearance or a greeting of the angel uh, where the angel makes himself known. Then this troubles both Zechariah and Mary. They get they get troubled. They're, they're scared. Um, the angel then commands them not to be afraid. Uh, the angel then promises them a son. The son is said that, that this son will be great and that he will have a mission. The missions are, are, are different. We'll get into that in a second. But Zechariah and Mary ask about how this will be. Um, Zechariah asks because he's old. Um, Mary asks because she's never known a man. Uh, she's still a virgin. Uh, and the angel responds to both of them with an answer. He, he answers their question. And both are given a sign um, so that they will know that what the angel said will, will come to pass. So they're given a sign. Zechariah, uh, his sign is that he's mute. He can't talk anymore because he, he doubted uh, the angel who came from the presence of God to give him good news is, is what the angel says. 
He won't be able to speak until his son is born. And so um, these connections are, right, they're at, they're at a, a structural level of the text. It's, it should be no surprise if, if you've read this account before. They're, I mean, they're right next to each other. The, the angel visits uh, Zechariah, and then immediately after the angel visits Mary, they're connected, they're intertwined. But even in the form, even in the way Luke writes, even in the way that he thinks about uh, what has been said, uh, he, he makes this, this connection between the two stories. And uh, I think that's cool. And so I wanted to say it to everybody because it's a, it's a fun little, it's fun. Like, it's a cool connection. Um, but there are some details of this visitation that we need to look at. Um, one will help us track with the story and the other is just for fun. So the first one is the fun fact. Um, and this detail, I, I think, um, given how uh, Jordan sort of started us out this morning, I, I think this... Um, I think that this uh, is really important. I, I, I think it's really important. So the, the first uh, detail is that God heard Zechariah's and Elizabeth's longing. He heard, right? Uh, verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And he will have, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Now we don't have uh, a lot of details here, but imagine that you are young, and that you desire something, that that something means so much to you, you value it so strongly that it's a, a core yearning of your heart. You want it more than anything else. Um, that it, it's something that you value so much that it pricks your heart with longing just to think about it, just to, just to, to put it into your head. You, you burn for it. So you're young, but now you're in your 80s, and you still don't have it. How many times would you have lifted that thing up to God in prayer? How many tears would you have cried out to him in longing and desire? How much of your heart would you have laid out before God? You're in your 80s now. That's tens of thousands of days and hundreds of thousands of hours and millions of minutes that you have spent praying and waiting and praying and waiting and praying. You've been discouraged, but still you've prayed. You've tried to move on, but still you've prayed. You've lost hope, but still you've prayed. And then an angel appears, and he announces to you good news. He says, you, what you have been longing for is yours. You will have a son what joy would break from your heart in that moment, right? What gratitude is pounding within the walls of your brain and just trying to get out of your mouth and into the world. That was the experience of Elizabeth and Zechariah. That is what they, that, uh, like, uh, so I don't know this for sure, but like, that's what I imagine was like for them. 
God saw them and he heard their prayer. What a good God. The second, so that was the first thing. The second thing is that John is different from Jesus. You see that in in verse 15, right? It says, for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So like Jesus, John will be great. For even Jesus says that John is the greatest man, person, born of woman. He John or Jesus says that in Matthew eleven eleven, where he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So John will be great. But but he is given requirements to set him apart for the work he is to do. He can't drink um, wine or strong drink, right? Just like Samson. Um, he, has, he, he, has, he has sort of like bounds on his holiness. He has requirements on the, the, the frailty of his flesh. And so even though he's the greatest of us born of woman, he still pales in comparison to the beauty of, of Jesus. John's mission, in fact, is to preach repentance, right? Turn from your wickedness. Stop sinning. Uh, depart from ways that are unloving and, un, and, and, and destroy others. So repent and to point them to the one who will take away the sins of the world. That's John's mission. That's his life goal. That's his purpose. John put his own mission and position in the world this way in, in John chapter 3, verses 27 through 30. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He's talking about Jesus, guys. Jesus. Therefore, this joy, this joy of mine is now complete because he sees the bridegroom. People are going to, to Jesus to be baptized. People are, are, are leaving John to go to Jesus. And, you know, uh, I think many people who have um, platforms that we want to call it, people who are popular, people who have lots of followers, they would, they would feel slighted, right? They would feel hurt. They would feel like, oh, I'm doing something wrong. All, all the people aren't coming to me anymore. They're going to somebody else. It makes John joyful. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, so, so this represents a way of living, a way of thinking, a way of, of being in the world that John has, right? He has it. He thinks this way. He operates this way. He lives this way. Where did he learn this way of thinking and manner of living? Who taught him about what it was to receive from heaven? 
Where did he learn he was not the Christ, but that he should look to another? How did he know his joy depended on this other? How did he know? And my answer to these questions is because his parents taught it and modeled it for him. Zechariah and Elizabeth gave him these gifts. So this this gets us into our next narrative section where Elizabeth responds to to this promise. All right, she she gets pregnant. And then uh, the Lord visits her. That when Mary comes and visits and and the Lord is, is in Mary's belly. So um, I think this is especially likely that, that, that John the Baptist was as he was because his parents taught him, because we see the type of woman that his mother was, right? We see who she is, and we don't get much of it, like there's only six verses, seven verses, Uh, But what we do paints a picture of a woman who I'd like to know. And just like John the Baptist, right, I'd I'd like to emulate her. So what what are the things we can learn about Elizabeth? Uh, The first is that she is grateful and recognizes that God has given her her child from heaven. Right, that's the way John the Baptist opens up, right? You can't have one thing unless it's given from heaven. So uh, verse 24 After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So being looked on by the Lord is to receive his blessing, right? When God's gaze lands on you, what that means is that he loves you. He cares for you. He he shows you himself, Um, And so she received his blessings and she senses that the blessings of the Lord removes her reproach. It takes it away. When God looks upon her, um, her burdens are lifted. The the second is that she is hospitable. If, If you jump down to verse 39, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So um, Fudd will probably talk, uh, Fudd's doing Mary on Christmas Eve. Um, But Mary's position is definitely a delicate one, right? She's a single lady. She has a fiance, so she's as good as married. Um, But she's pregnant now. Um, And we know from Matthew's account that Joseph, when he finds out that she's pregnant, seeks to quietly divorce her because uh, he thought she was unfaithful to him. Uh, He thought that she had broken his trust. Um, He thought that that she had sinned against him. Uh, But before before that happens, right, and and he does it quietly, um, it says to protect her from from shame, Um, but the, an angel appears and sets the record straight, and Joseph, right, stays with her. Um, but we know that immense societal shame would have been cast upon Mary if she had been publicly divorced. And you see that in Matthew 1, uh, 18 and following. And, and, and it is likely that she still faced troubles and trials because of her pregnancy. I think, I think that's, that's very likely. She, it's likely that she was kind of a social uh, pariah. And uh, who does this young woman turn to in her time of need? 
who welcomes her into her home and lets her stay there for three months, right? Zechariah and Elizabeth do. So she is hospitable. She's welcoming. She, she brings in somebody who has need. The, the third thing that, that Elizabeth does is she blesses others. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And the, this, this goes back to my first point about uh, hospitality here. What was Mary expecting as she walked through the door? Um, was, she, was she expecting some begrudging hospitality that you give your kin, right? People who are related to you, but you don't want to because they've made bad life choices, right? Or they're, they're too, um, the, they hold views that are just too undesirable for me to care for them, or uh, they're, they're too, um, you know, they're not cultured enough, or they're, they're too crass, or they're, you know, they're, they're too rich, they're too country. And what did she receive instead of what she could have expected? She receives blessing and joy, right? She shouts for joy when she arrives, when she, when she, when she hears her greeting. And so verse 43 uh, Elizabeth continues, And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Elizabeth uses her tongue to build up Mary, to encourage her, to, to welcome her in. Uh, Elizabeth blesses others. The fourth and final thing we can learn uh, from Elizabeth and, and model and pattern like uh, John the Baptist did is that she acts as a sign to confirm the word of God to Mary that she carries the Christ. So we didn't uh, back up in 1, 26 to 38 where Mary gets visited by the angel, right? Mary gets visited. Um, in that narrative, uh, just like the one with Zechariah, Mary is given a sign, Right? She says, How, how's this going to be? Um, and God says this, or Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child, will be born, uh, the, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, this is the sign part, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary, so, so uh, this, the way that this sort of functions, right, is uh, the angel tells her how she's going to have a baby and then gives her a sign that what he says is actually true, and the sign is actually that something miraculous has happened uh, with her relative Elizabeth, that she's pregnant, that, that this 80-year-old-ish woman uh, who was barren her whole life and who has an old husband, right, is pregnant. And that she's six months pregnant, not just newly pregnant. Like, you're, you're visibly bumped, right, at six months. Um, so, so you can verify this. And so uh, at verse 38, Mary said, Behold, uh, I am the servant of the Lord. Let, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
All right, and then where does Mary go? She goes to Elizabeth to find out if this is true, right? She goes to the woman who is her sign, who will confirm to her what the angel of the Lord said to her. And so what happens when Mary shows up is Elizabeth, she doesn't know this sign, but Elizabeth confirms the word of God to Mary. She confirms it. She seals it in her heart. She, she puts a stamp of true on the word of God. And so Elizabeth, I, I, I'm sure Elizabeth was an amazing woman, and we should be like her. We should show gratitude and be thankful to God for his many blessings. We should demonstrate hospitality to others, especially to those in crisis. We should actively bless others with our words. And finally, we should bear witness that God's word is sure and can be relied upon. And so that gets us to our, our last section here, of the, the third narrative section, where we have the birth and the naming and the prophecy. So uh, 50, verse 57 through verse 80. So Elizabeth, Mary has left. Uh, she stays about three months, which would add up to about nine. So she's six months pregnant plus three months equals nine, which is kind of when ladies have babies um, after they conceive. So um, Elizabeth gives birth to a son, and they call his name John on the day of his circumcision. But her relatives are like, no, like, we should call him Zechariah. Nobody's named John in your family. Let's call him Zechariah. So they ask Zechariah, and Zechariah can't talk, so he motions to get like a tablet, um, and he writes, his name will be John, because he can't talk. And um, he can speak now, right? The, 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 um, his, his voice is loosed, and now the mute man speaks in all the joy and excitement, and his longing that has been fulfilled comes pouring out of his mouth. It just comes pouring out. He's praising God, and he, and he, he gives this great prophecy, as he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He speaks these true things that, that uh, he, he has probably been welling up in him for months now, right? For months and months and months as he, as he feels his son kicking in his wife's belly, right? As, as he thinks upon the goodness of his God, as, as he, he reads his, his scriptures and sings his psalms and does all those things that the, a righteous man who follows all the commandments of God and statutes, right, would have been doing. He would have been, um, you know, thinking about God's law and, and reading his psalms and singing them in his head because he can't because his mouth has uh, been made mute. And so the, the reason that I started with the Davidic covenant is because it ends with the Davidic covenant. And so let's do a, a quick little rehash of what those key features of the Davidic covenant are. The first is that he'll have a king to rule the earth forever. He'll have destruction of enemies and he'll have blessings instead of curses. Also keep in mind that Zechariah has just had his lifelong yearning fulfilled to have a son. And the son was promised him by an angel, and he was mute for months because he doubted, but he has a son now, and his son will prepare the way of the Lord. He will, he, he's, a, he's a forerunner for the guy who comes behind. The, the second that you should keep in mind is Zechariah just had Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus, the son of David, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, Emmanuel, God with us, living in his house for three months and couldn't say a word. He couldn't say a word. 
The king who would rule the whole earth forever was in his house. And Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we might be delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. In Zechariah's prophecy, we have a king and we have a victory and we have a blessing. And Jesus is that king. Jesus is that victory. And Jesus is that blessing. Jesus offers forgiveness of sins. Jesus extends to us the tender mercy of our God. Jesus is the sunrise from on high that shines light upon us who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Jesus is our way of peace. Do you have Jesus today? Are you calling upon his name to be saved? Do you reverentially and submissively kiss the Son King Jesus like Psalm 2 commands us? Do we approach him and pay homage to him? Are you entering the narrow gate and are you on the hard road that leads to life? Have you come to him with all of your burdens and asked him to remove them from you? Are you asking him for everything you need for body and soul as he commands us in the Lord's Prayer. Do you have faith in this Jesus? Let us pray. Lord, we are so grateful that in so many ways you have proven your faithfulness to us. The angel has declared that nothing is impossible with God. You make impossible things happen, Lord. You've made a virgin give birth. You've made barren women bear children in their old age. You have been faithful to me. You've been faithful to us. You have been faithful to your church. And so, Lord, we, we come to you with praise, we come to you with our longings. We come to you with our expectations and our hopes and our dreams. And we come to you for Jesus. We come to you for the promise of salvation. We come to you for, for light and for love and for peace. We come to you for victory. We come to you to have our burdens lifted. We come to you for life. 
Nothing else can give us life. Only you, Jesus. Only you. And so be to us the Lord of life today. Break into our lives and make us more like you. Change us that we may love you and serve you without fear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.